right, kids, if I could have your attention just for a second. Have you ever been so excited for Christmas and that it's here that you wish it would never end? Doesn't the week after Christmas not sound like near as much fun as the week of Christmas? Do you wish that every single day were filled with the excitement of Christmas? That means you want something really deep down. You want something that actually only Jesus can give you. If you believe in him one day, he will give you a chance to never again be sad that the fun part is over. We have to wait for it, and it's not easy, but there will be no end to the joy that you can experience if you believe in him. We'll be talking about that a little bit this morning from Ruth. Speaking of which, it's just been a joy to walk together through this little book, especially in reference to the coming of Jesus Christ. Now we've come to a place where we have to remember that Naomi's emptiness is the issue at stake. Now that Ruth and Naomi have gotten food, that was last week in chapter 2, they met Boaz, they were fed, they can glean in his field, but Naomi is still unable to carry on her dead husband's line. And she and Ruth are bound to remain in this survival mode, even with Boaz as their lifeline. Okay, found a place where we can get food. A generous man who represents the heart of God is going to take care of us. But Naomi has, has these deep longings that remain unfulfilled empty ruts that have been worn in her soul by grief. And our situation isn't too much different. After all, there's, there's one kind of person in this whole room. Someone who lives in a broken world, who has sinned against God, who has been wronged by others at some point, who longs forever to be satisfied, who has shed tears and who wants things to be made right, who wants to be sure that their future is secure and who can only be filled and have eternal joy if they live with God himself forever. That's you. That's me. That's every one of us. So what are you hoping will fill those deep longings? We all share those yearnings just like Naomi is yearning for the possibility of not being an empty woman embittered by grief. What needs to change in order for that sort of filling and that sort of rest to happen for you? Well, in reality, if you're a Christian, something very important needs to not change in order for that to happen, and that is Christ's faithful, redeeming love. Here's the main idea of Ruth 3. The hope of our deepest longings being fulfilled depends on Christ's faithful, redeeming love for us. The hope of our deepest longings being filled depends on Christ's faithful, redeeming love for us. Nothing else. If Christ is not faithful to redeem us out of our sin-stricken state and make our world right again, then we should expect to go on longing and longing and yearning for things to get better. Even the political peace that you deeply desire or that sense of belonging you would do anything for or that desire to no longer be toiling day in and day out if Christ is not faithful to redeem us, you shouldn't expect any of that to change. That grief will never 
go away, or the future healing will never come, or the monotony of life will continue to feel like chasing after the wind. Like Ecclesiastes says, however, Jesus is faithful to finish what he has started, which means we have hope. We believe every portion of this Bible, including the book of Ruth, these events that happened a a thousand years before Jesus came, we think that all of it has everything to say about our Redeemer and his faithful love for us. We're just going to walk through this scene of Ruth 3 to see that. Naomi's plan, Ruth's actions, and Boaz's response to see how it is that the hope of our longings being filled one day depends on Christ's faithful, redeeming love for us. So first, Naomi's plan. Many of you may be so familiar with Ruth that this is the kind of most tense moment. It starts with Naomi wanting to see Ruth provided for with a better life than she's had thus far. It bothers her that Ruth is just as empty as she is. She says in verse 1, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. What's Naomi hoping for here? Last week she told us that Boaz is one of their redeemers. What exactly does that particularly mean? Well, God shows us exactly what it means to be a redeemer back in Exodus, far before Ruth's time. Here's what Exodus 6 says when God's people were still enslaved in Egypt. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession." I am the Lord. Redemption is serious business because it involves someone acting on behalf of someone else to deliver them from harm or hostility, like forcibly taking and restoring those given over as slaves. God is the example of what it means to be a redeemer, which we'll come back to. But for now, God actually made redeeming others a part of Israel's society by putting it into his law. Here's an example. This kind of fleshes out what, what does it mean that Boaz is a redeemer? That might mean something in our minds that we want to get clarity on what scripture says that word means. Leviticus 25, 23 says this, the land shall not be sold in per- perpetuity. It won't be sold forever for the land is mine, says the Lord, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. 
and all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So God put it in writing that there would always be recourse for someone to act on an Israelite's behalf so that they could be restored and their land redeemed. The land that God had promised them when he first took them out of Egypt. It's called promised land because a gracious God ensured that it would be given to his chosen people. Beyond the land, an Israelite relative could even buy them out of slavery if they had to sell themselves because they were too poor. God is merciful to his people, isn't he? Even to include this recourse, to include an option to redeem a relative who is in a hard place. And one reason he did so was to show us how he has redeemed us as his children. Like stepping in to give us what we had lost, paying a price to take us out of slavery, acting on our behalf when we were powerless to resolve the situation. So putting two and two together now, you can see why Naomi was so excited at the end of chapter two that Ruth had come across Boaz. Boaz could restore Naomi financially and keep Elimelech's land in the family, that promised land. But that would do nothing for Ruth's widowhood and the dead end of Elimelech's line, right? A financial redemption isn't just what they need. They only have half a solution that wouldn't address the deeper longings. She needs someone who would step in to go further by marrying Ruth which could happen through another provision from God's law. I hinted at this a few weeks ago, but here's what Deuteronomy 25 says. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Again, that probably sounds very strange because we we don't live this way. But maintaining the identity of God's people was of utmost importance because they pointed to the glory and holiness and supremacy of God among the nations. So keeping the family line intact was a big deal, and God made a way for that to happen through this marriage provision. But Boaz isn't a close brother. So far as we know, he's not Elimelech's brother. He's a distant relative. He's not necessarily the primary one responsible to fix the situation. That's one of the reasons why what's about to happen is so risky. Naomi whips up this plan to help Ruth. But we don't really know if if Naomi was being manipulative. Was she just going to use Ruth as a means to an end? Or was she genuinely interested in Ruth's well-being? Based on her response at the end of chapter 2, I honestly think that Naomi is daring to hope again that God will fill her emptiness after losing everything. She's daring to believe that Boaz is a man of character and that if called upon, he will restore both of them in every way. But the plan is absolutely crazy. See verse 2. See, is winnowing in the winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. 
Wash, therefore, Ruth, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, when he's satisfied after, after taking in this harvest, observe, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Two months or so has passed, and Boaz is about to take stock of how the harvest went. He and his servants will beat the stalks of grain, throw them up in the air, let the wind carry off the so-called chaff, and leave the grain behind. Then he would stay there overnight to protect his hall at the threshing area. That's where he'd be. So Ruth, wash up, get ready. Now Boaz already knows who Ruth is. So she's not just going there to introduce herself, especially not under the cover of night. If it's not to be introduced, then what are you suggesting, Naomi? A Moabite woman coming to lay down next to a man and wake him up in the middle of the night. It sounds risky at best and risque at worst. Many people will tell you that sinister Naomi was trying to force a way to get descendants from for Elimelech by basically arranging for Ruth to get pregnant. I'm not so sure that those are Naomi's intentions, but even if they were, Ruth's actions prove that that's not what goes down here. That's point number two, Ruth's actions. Off Ruth goes to the threshing floor. I will do exactly as you asked me to do. She's ever willing to follow Naomi, just like she proclaimed from the very start. Where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. So she is loyal to her mother-in-law. Under the cover of night, she leaves the town and goes to where Boaz would be, where the crops would be processed. Like I said, Boaz would probably have had a full meal and was fast asleep, positioned to ward off anyone who would try to steal some of his valuable crop. It's, it's what any responsible farmer would do. But Ruth comes and takes his cloak or whatever was covering his legs so that the cool evening air would wake him up. You may have heard this described in such a way where Ruth somehow exposes Boaz by stripping him naked, which honestly sounds a lot like interestingly, like Ruth's foremothers did to their father, Lot. Also, uncovering someone's feet was often used as a euphemism. It's what you do when you have to use the bathroom, for example. So it's not unreasonable to think that something questionable is about to happen. And I think that's part of the point. The author is making us wonder and building anticipation I don't know how this is going to go. Because if Ruth somehow seduced Boaz or Boaz took advantage of Ruth, if that happened, this book might as well be Judges 2.0. But for once, just for once, we see two people showing God's loyal love to Naomi while also maintaining their integrity. Here's why I think nothing immoral went down. Not because I want to sanitize this story, but because I think the next verses say so. Verse 8, Boaz wakes up. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? 
And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young, other young men, whether poor or rich. If you've ever had a child end up coming to your bedside in the middle of the night for a drink of water, and they somehow got there without making a sound, you, you know what Boaz must have felt like, this startle, this jolt of someone who's not, you're not expecting to be there. He feels the chill of the night on his uncovered legs, and as he rolls over, finds someone laying at his feet who wasn't there before. So naturally, what would you do? He'd ask, who are you? Obviously, Boaz didn't recognize her, but she tells him, I'm Ruth. But she goes further than that. She humbly calls herself his servant, but then she calls him to spread his wings over her. That's shorthand for a marriage proposal, and it's meant to be symbolized by a man taking his robes and spreading it over his bride-to-be, essentially taking her under his wing. Recall what we talked about last week and how God spreads his wings of protection over us. He describes his relationship with his people in this intimate way in Ezekiel 16.8, even though, just following, they were unfaithful to him. Ezekiel 16, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. And I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. Ruth has already come under Boaz's kind provision, but here she's asking him to go even further than that. She's asking him to redeem her, but not just her. Naomi, too. Ruth is here with clear and pure intentions, and not to mention selfless ones. How many of us would go and marry someone primarily to benefit somebody else. That's how we make sense of Boaz's reaction. He blesses her. I can't imagine a scenario where a worthy man of character blesses someone who is trying to seduce him. No, he blesses someone who is showing an equal amount of integrity. But what he says still seems pretty strange. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Here's what Boaz isn't saying. Aw, shucks, you shouldn't have. You could have picked the richer or the more strapping fellow, but you picked old Boaz. No, the kindness that Ruth showed is not primarily towards Boaz, but Naomi. The first kindness she showed was coming to Bethlehem so that she could help Naomi survive. Boaz knew that she did this. The greater kindness is that Ruth is bravely coming to Boaz and she is willing to end up marrying him and have children for Elimelech's line all out of selfless love for Naomi. There's no shred of, this is my life and I'll do with it what I want. She's taking the entire trajectory of her future and doing everything she can to benefit Naomi. You see that? Not to strip the romantics out of it, but Ruth, I think, is acting purely on the principle of looking to the interests of Naomi. Boaz notices this. He affirms 
her character. In verse 11, he calls her a worthy woman, which in a beautiful way is such the counterpart to chapter 2, Boaz, a worthy man. Who are you and what are you doing at the threshing floor? Are you up to no good? Are you going to live up to the reputation of a godless Moabite? No. Ruth shatters the stereotype and conducts herself in such a way that Boaz marvels at her and blesses her. Last week, we saw how Boaz's character looked so much like Christ as he cared for Ruth, and he provided for Naomi by acting like, God, like God's wings of refuge. All of us are meant to follow his example but I specifically gave a call to the men here last week. In the same way, we are all meant to see Ruth's selflessness as a picture of the selfless love of Christ, the self-giving love of Christ, the unceasing commitment of Christ, the bold love of Christ. But I want to also specifically address the ladies of this church, whether you're Libby's age or 38 or 88, I can say the same of you, as I said to the men last week. From, from what I've experienced the last few years, you possess such a clear resemblance to Christ, and it's humbling to me. You give of yourselves for the benefit of others. You are loyal to your husbands. You are faithful moms. You are beloved sisters in Christ. But rather than just say, Ruth is, is an example to you and move on. I want you to see her as an example insofar as she resembles Christ himself. Ladies, what, what do you see in Ruth? Just shout out some, some character qualities in Ruth that you've seen in these three chapters. Loyalty. Anything else? Yeah, obedience to Naomi. Lots of wonderful traits. And she is proof that courage and integrity are not just for the Boazes in the world, but they are part and parcel to being a follower of Christ. May you as women, may your families and this church family say, Mom, Grandma, big sister, little sister, wifey, daughter, your selfless love shows me what my Savior looks like. Your faithful love towards others is just like God's faithful love to me in Christ. Jackie has been one of the clearest pictures of this to me. Just ask me when my head is spinning and I get looked in the eyes and reminded of the truth or when I see her tending to two little ones day in and day out, you have been showing me what selfless love looks like for a long time, and I have so much to learn from you. Ladies, maybe some people can say of you, your selfless love has made me believe that Jesus really does care about me. Or your loyalty to me when I was despairing really pulled me out of a dark place. 
or your commitment to take a risk to your comfort and safety to tell me the gospel of Jesus changed my life. May that be said of us as we continue to reflect Christ. You probably recognize these words from Proverbs 31. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband's also and he pra- her husband also, and he praises her. Now some of you may be thinking and reading that, saying, well, I'll, I'll never be like her. This description of the Proverbs 31 woman isn't just this unreachable mark or standard for you. It's a picture of who Christ is forming you into as a woman. You may be discouraged thinking, I'll never compare to what feels like the super moms and super saints around me, women who just are knocking it out of the park. You have been given a very, very important promise, which is the same to the men, and I pray it encourages you. God has predestined you to be conformed to the image of Christ. God has before the foundations of the world has made up his mind that you, daughter of God, will be conformed to the image of Christ. You will further and further represent Jesus, and that's a guarantee that he has given you. So as your brother and someone who is thrilled to be a fellow heir of the grace of life with you, keep going, keep striving to be a woman who is not self-interested or self-absorbed. Be a woman who is full of Christ-like integrity, whether alone or with family or in the workplace. I am sure, based on what God has promised, that he will conform you to the image of Jesus. That's what we see from Ruth's actions. Boaz's response is also very important here. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Naomi's plan could have totally backfired. Boaz could have treated Ruth like dirt. He could have cast her aside like a foreigner and completely rejected her plea. But just as Boaz's character was known in the community, so was Ruth's. And Boaz honors that. That's instructive for us, both men and women, outdo one another in showing honor. He honors her. He acknowledges that she is a worthy woman. Not worthy as in worthy to, me, to be married, though she is, but worthy as in upright and someone who loves her mother-in-law selflessly. Thankfully, he interprets the situation for what it is. A widow who is taking a risk on behalf of her family in the fear of the Lord and who is calling and asking, even almost demanding, that Boaz act to restore them by redeeming them financially and also by marrying her. If you're reading the story straight through, at this point you wonder, 
What's he going to do? How will Boaz answer her? Don't be afraid, Ruth. I will do all that you ask. And that's where, we, that's where the, the soccer announcer is saying, goal, score. Naomi, who had no hope coming into Bethlehem, having lost everything, has come upon this man who is going to willingly restore her. And God has used her faithful daughter-in-law to make it possible. But, hold on, there's one pretty significant problem. This whole redeeming thing has an established pecking order. And apparently, by law, there's some other fellow in front of Boaz in line. And Boaz, in keeping with his uprightness, intends to ensure that he is faithful to God's law while also being faithful to his promise. In verse 13, he says, Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he, if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. In our minds, we're thinking, man, all of us really wanted Boaz to be the guy who redeems this family and marries Ruth. He's the man of character. Who knows about this other redeemer? We'll actually meet him next week, but in the meantime, Boaz gives Ruth his word. He will not leave Ruth and Naomi to suffer. He refuses to because he knows that God is not that way, carelessly brushing people aside. So he will not just uphold the law, but go beyond it to ensure that this family line continues and the longings of these two widows are fulfilled. Boaz tells Ruth to lie down into the morning so he could guarantee her safety. But he wasn't just interested in her physical well-being. He was also interested in her reputation and keeping his word. He sends her back home carrying a ton of grain, like a guarantee of his promise. And he sends her off before people can suspect that she's there for the wrong reasons. We can appreciate Boaz's discretion here. It's not secrecy, it's thoughtful wisdom. During this whole time, you can imagine Naomi back at home just wringing her hands. Was Ruth okay? Should she have even suggested this plan? How did Boaz respond? So when Ruth came back to her mother-in-law, Naomi said, verse 16, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Ever since they met Boaz, Ruth and Naomi have been far from empty-handed, which is interesting given the fact that the story starts with Naomi shouting, I'm empty, all is lost. This is the beginning of a new story, a story where Naomi can say, I was empty, but now I'm full. Naomi was sure that Boaz was going to take care of the matter immediately, but in the meantime, they had to wait. How is this all going to turn out? Would this worthy man be the one to redeem them, or would some scoundrel agree so he could get Elimelech's land out of the deal? Or would it all fall through? You've, you've been there. Moments of waiting, moments of silence where you have no idea how it will turn out. But you can also 
probably vouch for the fact that waiting is very different from waiting with hope. Ruth and Naomi now have solid hope in the form of a willing redeemer named Boaz, and it changes everything. It even caused Naomi back in chapter 2 to realize that God actually hadn't forgotten her. And this is where Christmas starts to not only be important for the past, but also for our future. Jesus has come. And we rejoice that he has come to save sinners like you and me. But now what? In what feels like a limbo time between the first coming and his promised second coming, where is our hope? Well, just like the entire story of Ruth depends on whether or not Ruth will remain loyal and faithful to Naomi and Boaz will remain loyal to his family and God's law, so our entire story depends on our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, remaining loyal and faithful to us. The Son of God obeying the Father's command to come was a show of his willingness to redeem us. And I just hear Boaz's words, I will redeem you, echoing in the background of the nativity scene. I will redeem you. Jesus was both willing and able, and he came to do exactly that. So how do we know he will finish what he started? Well, friends, he is more loyal to his covenant with us than Ruth or Boaz could ever be to their own commitments. He will fill our emptiness. Your deepest longings, your grandest hopes, he will fulfill them all. Like a betrothed man determined to marry. The hope of our deepest longings being fulfilled does depend on Christ's faithful, redeeming love for us. It doesn't depend on you. You cannot guarantee that you'll wake up tomorrow, much less make sure that your lifelong yearnings will be fulfilled. I feel powerless to make that happen. It all depends on whether Christ is faithful to us and whether his redeeming love remains for us. Jesus is our Redeemer, who, like Boaz, took upon himself the responsibility to buy us back. Being redeemed and being ransomed are very similar concepts in Scripture. Both are a price paid to restore someone. Boaz gives grain and his word, and he acted on his promise, as we'll see next week. How has Jesus done something similar? He has paid a price and acted on his promise. 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like money, like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Not only has Jesus redeemed us, he has done it with his own blood. The same blood that flowed through his heart as an infant a few decades later was the price paid to take us from destitute to destined for glory with him. We stake our hope on the fact that one with such faithful love is the one who will fully and finally deliver us. He will fill our emptiness, fulfill our longings, and give us eternal joy. 
As Christians, we have been promised this in the future, even after Christ came to us and bore our sins and rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. But we still tend to put our hope in things that will likely pass away. If my happiness is dependent on anything except Christ's faithfulness to me as one for whom he died, then I will be let down. But, but if Christ has proven that he will remain faithful and that he has redeemed us with his own blood, church, we have everything to look forward to. We have everything to be thrilled about in the future. Every reason to believe that Christ will fill our emptiness and bring us into his presence forever. And we take part in the Lord's Supper every Sunday, not because it's on our to-do list for the morning, but because Jesus invited us to be nourished by remembering that he died for us. And no matter how strange this event seems like to the rest of the world around us, we're going to keep doing it. We're going to keep taking the Lord's Supper together. We cling to the fact that he broke his body and shed his blood because we know that this is proof that he will go to the uttermost to fulfill his promises.